Hi, and thanks for listening to Here and Now Anytime. We've got new episodes every weekday afternoon, so make sure you don't miss anything by following and subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. Just look for Here and Now Anytime. And if you've already subscribed, tell a friend about us. Now here's the show. I want to exist in society just as everyone else, like a normal person, with respect and with dignity. The sudden blackout of stripper web has some adult entertainment workers worried it'll be harder to warn one another about abusers. It's Friday, February 17th, and this is Here and Now Anytime from NPR and WBUR Boston. I'm Chris Bentley. Today on the show, the creator of Mario and Zelda reflects on his iconic character's rise from pixels to pillars of video game design, and... For decades, sex workers used the forum stripper web to support one another and police abuse. But the site just went down without explanation. First, though, we're reviewing an interesting week in politics, one that ends with eyes on Georgia, where the Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis is deciding whether a grand jury should examine evidence that witnesses lied under oath in her investigation of former President Trump's efforts to overturn the state's 2020 presidential election results. That's where Deepa Fernandez and Jane Clayson started our Friday Politics Roundtable with guests Margaret Tolive, the senior contributor at Axios, and Darlene Superville, a White House reporter for the Associated Press. So let's start in Georgia, where Fonnie Willis could become the first prosecutor in history to indict a former president. Margaret, does that seem closer to reality now? And what would that mean? Well, it certainly means it's possible. We don't know precisely where things are going because um, the entire report was not released, of course. But um, what uh, what we're talking about here is the idea that there were uh, multiple perjurers, um, uh, witnesses uh, here who, uh, you know, change their stories. Uh, and that is a problem for, uh, for former President Trump. And um, I think you're going to see a lot more coverage uh, around uh, this, uh, this prosecutor. This is a, a, a real force of nature, a historic figure mm. in, uh, in Georgia law enforcement and someone to be watched nationally. Okay. Well, tell us a little more, and and Darlene, maybe bring you in here, because yesterday Trump claimed total exoneration because (laughs) the partial special grand jury report released didn't name him. He didn't testify, but his lawyer and former chief of staff did. Now, as he campaigns for re-election, can Trump brush off this investigation as easily as he has others? Well, he can certainly try, right? And that's one of the things that uh, Donald Trump is known for doing, just sort of brushing off these serious situations that he finds himself in. But he, uh, you know, he's still under investigation, not only by uh, this special grand jury for his actions in Georgia. He's also being investigated or continues to be investigated for his handling of classified documents and material that he took with him to his home in Florida after he left the White House. So he may want to live in an alternate reality where everything seems fine and dandy for him simply because he was not named in a report from a grand jury to which he did not testify. But time will tell um, <laughs> yeah, this is exactly what will come of all this. This is not an exoneration. Absolutely mm-hmm. not an exoneration. <laughs> and this is a report that's giving Ms. Willis 
um, sort of uh, the, uh, the the platform if she decides uh, to uh, seek indictments that could include him. It doesn't mean she will decide that, but it's a tremendous, tremendous tool if she decides to go forward. Hmm. Well, we are seeing a polling by the Associated Press that is showing Republicans are evenly divided about whether Donald Trump should actually run again. But as of this week, uh, he officially has a challenger uh, in Nikki Haley, his former U.N. ambassador and South Carolina governor. On Fox News this morning, Haley was asked about a comment from CNN anchor Don Lemon, who said as a 51-year-old woman, she was past her prime. Look, this is something that I have faced all of my life. I have always made the liberals' heads explode. They can't stand the fact that a minority conservative female would not be on the Democratic side because they know I pull independents. They know I pull suburban women. They know I pull minorities over to what we are trying to do. Margaret, how is Haley positioning herself in this race in a field that really is expected to get a lot more crowded? I mean, she's trying to take advantage of her timing right now uh, to uh, to get um, more concentrated coverage in which she can drive the narrative and she can set the story about herself. And she is uh, the first formal challenger to Donald Trump in what could be a very credit contest. She's also um, the, fir- the first and perhaps the only woman who's going to be running. And she's also in her 50s, uh, which uh, actually... Uh, Uh, folks groups and polling tell us Americans think is the prime age. You are in your prime to seek the presidency when you're in your 50s. So she is squarely uh, in her prime and she knows it. She's been fundraising off of this. She uh, is... um, she is trying to pursue an argument, uh, not just that she should be a next generation figure, but that... um, you know, by implication, uh, Joe Biden and Donald Trump are both too old. She's talked about... um, you know, competency, competency tests for candidates over 75, that's not a thing. That's not going to happen. But mm-hmm. she's certainly getting a lot of ink off of it. The challenge mm-hmm. for her is how to continue to try to hold Trump close when messaging to the base while separating herself from him. She's not renounced him. She continues to say she thinks he was a good uh, president, and she is not dealing squarely with these issues about the role he played in uh, t- trying to overturn an election that he lost. Uh, and so I think for her, the challenge is not going to be her age. <laughs> I think the challenge yeah. is going to be uh, how she holds the base close uh, while still gives herself a place where she can appeal to people who want to move past Trump. Right. And she, she has to figure out how to, to differentiate herself from all of the other candidates who are uh, expected to get into the race later on in in this year or or next year. So that that is a big challenge for her. Yeah. You know, she she obviously is going to be challenged by by other candidates. But right now she's kind of Trump is the only one that she's having to deal with. And, you know, you mentioned there, Margaret, that she talked about him, Trump as a president. Let's just listen to exactly what she said on NBC yesterday. What I'll tell you is I think he was a good president. There was so much that he did that was good. I mean, she's going to be pushed on that one, right? Uh, Sure. But look, DeSantis is the elephant in the room here. And all the early polling, and it is early polling, tells us there are two candidates in this race. One of them's declared, one of them isn't. It's the Florida governor. DeSantis, also in his 50s, is much more of a contemporary of Haley's and uh, much more sort of in the camp that would say... um, uh, new generation, like I have, you know, my own message to offer. And the challenge for Nikki Haley, for Mike Pence, for 
um, Chris Nunu for all the Republicans who either in her case have announced or in their cases are kind of in the in the background, but everyone ex expects that they are testing the waters. Is um, can, is there any universe in which Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis cancel each other out, and it creates a path for a different uh, figure, or are they all basically triangulating? And, and potential spoilers in a contest between Trump and DeSantis. It's very frustrating if you are a candidate and you're polling at 1% or 3% uh, for people to marginalize you and say, you don't matter, there's only two candidates in the race. But the reality is, in the next couple of months, these people all have to raise money, they have to assemble donors, they have to assemble momentum, they have to continue coverage, and they, ha they have to catch in, uh, in, in at least the base's interest and imagination in order to propel themselves forward. Mm. We should say Ron DeSantis, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, is actually only 44. So speaking of age, there's a oh, broad yes, you're range. Oh, right. I'm sorry. Yes. yes. Yeah. Um, you know, I want to move on because in the midst of all this this week, there was that spy balloon story. Uh, yesterday, President Biden defended his decision to shoot down a suspected Chinese spy balloon and three other flying objects this month. Yesterday, he said clearer rules of engagement are forthcoming. But make no mistake, if any object presents a threat to the safety and security of the American people, I will take it down. Darlene, he's faced bipartisan criticism to say more sooner. Um, it can't help that this week there are stories that kids and parents in a hobby group called the Northern Illinois Bottle Cap Balloon Brigade think that it was actually their balloon that got shot down last weekend over remote Alaska. I mean, what a story. Right. And that's exactly why we saw the president come out and say that he's calling for these sharper and clearer rules on how to engage with these unidentified flying objects and how to determine whether they pose a threat or whether they should be shot down or be allowed to just sail across the country as the China spy balloon did before it was ultimately shot down. Um, but he did face a lot of pressure there for a while because there seemed to not be a lot coming from the White House about what they what these things were, what these objects were, and what they knew. And that vacuum was being filled with a lot of misinformation and theories. And so he had to come out at some point and, and, and try to explain the rationale behind his decision-making there. And I want to just turn us to one more topic that made big news this week, and that was 89-year-old California Senator Dianne Feinstein telling us she's not going to run for re-election. She was the first woman senator from California. New York Times called her a trailblazing Democratic power broker. I think it could be fair to say she's a politician from another era. Margaret, what are your thoughts? I mean, uh, she, has, she stayed too long is the bottom line. Uh, Dianne Feinstein's legacy is that she was a trailblazer for women, a trailblazer for gay rights, that she was crucial to the existence of the assault weapons ban for all those years and the call to renew it now. And her work on the CIA torture report revealing what the United States government was doing with interrogation practices after 9-11. If you're 20 or 30 years old, you don't know any of that about Dianne Feinstein. You know that it's a mm -hmm. woman who's nearly 90 who has major memory problems who California Democrats have been trying to figure out uh, how to, uh, you know, succeed her. Yeah. And that's going to be a very crowded race. But uh, when you look at, at her decades of legacy, it's quite phenomenal. Margaret Talib, Darlene Superville, really appreciate your comments and contribution. Great conversation. Thanks. Thank Thanks, you. Guys. Coming up. 
a rare interview with the man behind Mario and Zelda. Your conversation is in another castle after the break. A new theme park opens this week at Universal Studios Hollywood, and it gave producer James Mastro Marino the chance to land us an interview he's been wanting to get for a while. Shigeru Miyamoto is a legendary game designer, having started so many iconic game franchises for Nintendo, including the Mario Brothers and The Legend of Zelda. The new theme park that brought Miyamoto to LA is an immersive experience for fans of Mario. It's called Super Nintendo World, and it's where NPR's A. Martinez took a spin on a ride based on Mario Kart. So the steering wheel has little buttons where we can start shooting at things. I don't know what I am shooting at. I'm just shooting randomly, trying to score as many points as possible. Now it looks like we're going to really enter Mario Kart. We are. Well, A might not have won that race, but he got something better. An interview with Miyamoto yesterday at the theme park. And he stopped by to tell us about it. So like, imagine just being in one of the Mario games or actually playing one of them, then just sucked through the Nintendo console wow. into the game. I mean, that's what it felt like seeing the colors and the textures and also getting my ears drenched in all the video game sounds. And all the heroes are there, Mario, Luigi, Princess Peach, Yoshi, and then his nemesis, Mario's nemesis, Bowser as well. And then you got all the famous Mario Brothers symbols. You got the mushrooms, the coins, and the stars. And really, that's exactly the kind of experience that Shigeru Miyamoto imagined when he designed the park. I mean, his influence on the gaming world is massive. You mentioned Donkey Kong and the Mario franchise. He also designed The Legend of Zelda and Duck Hunt. And he's really good at creating games that are easy to learn, no matter your age or gaming experience. And my mom, she was actually able to pick up Mario Mm. Brothers very, very quickly when when I was a kid. And I asked uh, Miyamoto about that. And this is what he said through an interpreter. Uh, Yes, so that is a very important concept. As we're making games, the core mechanism that goes into the game is actually very simple and and pure. And really, after that, it's about understanding what the player would want. I really feel like really distilling it um, down to that helps then the player use their imagination to kind of have their play experience even uh, grow even more so. Um, For example, like, you know, the first uh, selections that you might make, we just, you know, boil it down to three selections, nothing too complicated. And when it comes down to interactivity and games, it's really the fact that pushing down a stick on a controller makes the character on screen move. That kind of direct uh, interaction between your action and the action that you're seeing is what makes games fun. And so, you know, we, we say Super Mario, but it's really the fact that going pushing left makes uh, Mario go left, pushing right makes Mario go right. That uh, core essence is something that we try not to forget as we're embarking in any kind of creative endeavor. What is the biggest difference for you designing a park versus designing a game? And you know, when we're talking about uh, theme parks, it really is really being able to experience the uh, theme park through your whole body, through actually being an immersive experience. And likewise, when you're playing games, although it may be a virtual experience, it's nonetheless an experience that you go through. And the kind of added key element into all of this is the interactivity, both as a game and from theme parks. And that's something that's shared across both of those. So in that sense, I think our collaboration uh, went very smoothly. When it comes to Mario, what, what do you think accounts for 
his ability to just be in the hearts of so many people, like people my age are in my 50s, my brother is in his uh, early 40s, but even now little kids now, that character seems to spark so much love and admiration for people of all ages. What do you think it is about Mario that, that elicits that reaction? You know, there was a time when um, people might have compared um, Mario with, with Mickey Mouse, and I really felt like uh, Mickey Mouse as a character grew alongside the medium of animation. And in that same vein, I feel that Mario is growing alongside this digital medium. Um, for example, in the history of Nintendo, for every kind of new hardware we put out, there's uh, been at least one Mario game that we put out. And in that same vein, um, you know, this this new park is yet another way that Mario um, and the, uh, the con actual construction, as well as the AR technology that's used in this park, really is, um, I think, another proper evolution that Mario has gone through. And I hope that uh, this becomes even more available and that he's able to uh, hang out in more people's hearts. Okay, so let me bring up a scenario. If the time comes where you are leaving this earth, but you could choose any one of the worlds that you have created to live in for eternity, which world do you choose? No, um, so I really love the work environment that I'm in because I get to engage in so many different things. So it'd be great if, you know, I could be in an environment where I can change the kind of work I do all the time. So I think it might just be my desk or my bathtub. <laughs> hmm, I thought for sure he was going to say he'd want to live in Hyrule. Anyway, tune in to NPR's Morning Edition next week for more from A. Martinez's interview with Shigeru Miyamoto. Coming up, this month, the site StripperWeb went offline, leaving adult entertainment workers without a key gathering place and without an explanation as to why. Jane Clayson speaks with one woman who says StripperWeb helped her and countless others stay safe. Stick around. you talk about what's going on at work. Maybe it's Twitter or LinkedIn. But for adult entertainment workers, one of the main forums they used to do just that has been shut down. It was called StripperWeb, and it was a place where workers could come together and share information and talk openly about their jobs without having to hide or sanitize their work. But concrete answers about why Stripper Web went away are hard to come by. Let's talk more about this with Marla Cruz. She's an escort and author who wrote about the end of Stripper Web for New York Magazine's The Cut. Marla, welcome to Here and Now. Hello, thank you for having me. Well, tell us more about what this site was and how you used it. Stripper Web was a massive forum with hundreds and hundreds of threads with strippers from all across the country talking about everything from tax advice to reviewing clubs to talking about their victories and their successes in the clubs and just the up and down nature of making a living as a stripper. It was also a place to mobilize against mistreatment, right? Absolutely. We had our own threads reviewing clubs and anybody 
any new dancer, any veteran dancer who had been in the industry for a long time could go on these threads and find other dancers talking about which clubs were rife with managers extorting dancers for money and for sex, or talking about which clubs had lax rules about what customers could and couldn't do in champagne rooms. It was really just an epicenter of information about safety and how to maintain our own boundaries as dancers in this industry. Sounds like a really tight-knit community in many ways. What's the reaction been to its demise then? Oh my God, just an outpouring of grief. I mean, this forum began in July of 2002. You'll find 20 years of history on this forum where dancers got together to talk about everything. And so the grief of losing this massive, massive culmination of stripper history is just, its the loss is incalculable. Well, no one knows exactly who the owner of Stripper Web was or really why it shut down. Why do you think it's such a mystery? It's difficult to say. You know, whenever I found out that the forum was closing, I talked to dancers who had been on the forum since the very beginning, who had moderated the forum even, veteran dancers who were just scrambling for answers. And unfortunately, we still don't have any. We're just left at a total loss as to what to do and and where to go with the loss of this forum. There has been a significant crackdown online, as you know, since anti-sex trafficking legislation was passed in the United States in 2018. The so-called FOSTA-SESTA bill holds websites criminally liable for content that may promote sex trafficking. Is it possible that illegal activity triggered some sort of action against Stripper Web? Well, because we can't ask the owner directly, we can't determine whether FOSTA-SESTA was a determining factor in shutting down the forum. But I will say that the posts on Stripper Web did not advertise sex for money. They simply offered advice on how to do it safely and offered escorts like myself the opportunity to connect with one another, whether we're doing legal work or illegal work. Well, over the last 20 years, was there ever a concern that this website crossed over into illegal activity in any way? Well, you'll find from my own experiences and from experiences of other dancers that the lines between legal and illegal sex work are quite blurred because sex workers like myself can have hands in several industries at once. And so there was never any advertising of sex on the forum. There was only sex workers who did both legal and illegal work on the forum talking about their experiences in all industries. Mm -hmm. Is it difficult to differentiate then between sex trafficking, which these laws were trying to cut back on, and consensual sex work? When you're an individual sex worker like myself, the lines seem very clear. You know, I myself have not been coerced into the industry, and many sex workers will tell you the same, that we are here out of our own volition But the law, unfortunately, doesn't want to differentiate and to make these distinctions between legal and illegal work because the law sees us all as potential criminals. 
It's been a few weeks now since Stripper Web shut down. Many people who used the site um, said they were willing to pay to keep the forum alive. Where are people gathering online now? Well, we're gathering on the most popular platforms. So everywhere from Twitter to Instagram to private Facebook groups, people are still gathering to share information about our experiences as strippers and sex workers, but it's becoming more and more sectioned off. And the importance of a forum like StripperWeb was the fact that anybody could find it. New strippers in particular who knew nothing about the industry or who nothing about who knew nothing about safety standards could go and find information. So the fact that we're all kind of scattered in our own bubbles makes new dancers less safe because they have less access to this information that could have helped them with their own boundaries and maintaining their safety in such a dangerous industry. You've said that the visibility of workers doesn't guarantee their safety. Can you help me understand what you mean by that? A lot of people these days will talk about sex work being normalized, but I would argue that it is the culture, the fashion, the aesthetic of sex work and stripping that has become mainstream in the culture. But that doesn't necessarily mean anything in terms of the safety for sex workers. Just existing as a sex worker is so difficult because adult entertainment, both legal and illegal services, violate the terms of service of the most popular platforms. We cannot participate openly in these institutions in the ways that we need to, just to exist in everyday society. For people listening to this, sort of wondering about the conversation generally, what do you say to them about what you do and the field that you've chosen to work in? I have been a sex worker my entire adult life. I got into the industry when I was 18, and I would say to them, Their concern about me as an individual sex worker should be centered solely on the safety of people like myself. What is going to help us work in this industry with the highest standards of safety and dignity? I want to exist in society just as everyone else, like a normal person, with respect and with dignity. That's Marla Cruz, an escort and author who wrote about the end of Stripper Web for New York Magazine's The Cut. Marla, thank you so much. Thank you. If you've experienced sexual abuse, you can call the free confidential National Sexual Assault Hotline at 1-800-656-HOPE. Or get help online at rainn.org. And head to hearanow.org for another story on a similar topic. Yesterday, Robin Young spoke with the people behind a new domestic violence hotline in Massachusetts aimed at the abusers. When there's domestic violence, our solutions understandably support survivors. They're like, oh, maybe options for restraining orders or shelters. So we're thinking, why don't we stop or interrupt intimate partner violence by talking to and working with the people causing harm. You can hear that whole conversation at hereandnow.org. This show comes from the team behind Here and Now, from NPR and WBUR Boston. 
Today's stories were produced by Lynn Menegon, James Mastromarino, and Gabrielle Healy. Our editors are Todd Munt, Julia Corcoran, Peter O'Dowd, Jill Ryan, and Kat Welch. Technical direction from Max Liebman and Mike Moschetto. Theme music by Max, Mike, and me. Our digital producers are Grace Griffin and Allison Hagen. And the executive producer of Here and Now is Carlene Watson. Thanks for listening. Hope you have a great weekend, and we'll be back Monday.